Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super excited for this week's show because we'll be talking about the brand new Netflix original film, The Old Guard, and I'm joined for this conversation by her first proper podcast appearance, Rosalie Lewis. Hi, Rosalie. Hey, Patrick. How's it going? It's going good. How are you? I am super excited to be here. I am happy that you are here. You have been on the podcast before for F This Movie Fest, but this is the first uh, like real full episode that you're joining me for. Yeah, and um, spoiler alert, I'm really excited about the movie we get to talk about, so <laughs> that will out very well. I have heard rumors to that effect. Erica <laughs> has seen your tweets. And you did text me a spoiler that you are very excited about this movie. So that is, that's going to be interesting. Um, Real quick, you are currently co-hosting your own podcast. Do you want to talk about that at all? Sure. So um, I am co-hosting a podcast called The Criterion Collectors. And it is in conjunction with uh, 25 Years Later, a site that actually started a while ago. And uh, the co-host reached out to me on Twitter, Tim Rosenberger, and he was looking for someone to join him. And uh, it's been really fun. So we've been talking about various Criterion movies. One of our recent podcasts was what our first Criterion purchase was. Mine was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and his was Modern Times with Charlie Chaplin. So that shows you, you know, the caliber of person I am, I guess. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's been super fun. I am um, not like a pretentious movie snob. I just like Criterion movies because they have lots of cool features and you know, there's a lot of stuff that you can't get elsewhere. So um, it's been fun to talk about movies on there. And it's also gotten me to watch more stuff that I probably wouldn't have sought out on my own. So, yeah, super fun. That's awesome. We are in the midst of a Criterion sale at Barnes & Noble. What, we are. What do you recommend? Oh, boy. That's a loaded question. I can tell you the two that I just picked up, which were Grand Budapest Hotel because I am a Wes Anderson completist, and um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire from Celine Siyama, which was one of my favorite movies of last year. Um, Definitely check it out. I think it's still on Hulu streaming um, for the moment, but certainly worth a pickup if you're looking for something new. And in terms of criterions that I already own and love, um, I really recommend Repo Man, Badlands, and let's see... um, I think Kiss Me Deadly, which is a great film noir that has a very memorable ending, um, would be my my next pick. So you really can't go wrong, but those are three that I really love. What about you, Patrick? You've got your uh, eye on anything this time around? Yes. uh, We picked up the new releases of War of the Worlds, um, which I'm very excited to see the restoration of that because that's a gorgeous looking movie. Um, the Great Escape, which I've actually never seen. Me either. Um, I, ever since Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that kind of really put the bug in my ear to finally check it out. Obviously, I've known about the movie my whole life, but I've never seen it. I was aware of like the gag of shaking the dirt out of the pants leg from, I think, a Naked Gun movie, maybe. But uh, <laughs> So I've arrived at it through all this other pop culture, but I'm finally going to check it out uh, for real. Um, and, and you'll see if it's great or if it makes you want to escape. <laughs> oh, see, this is why you're on the show. <laughs> um, this is why I'll never be on the show. Again. 
Uh, and then we also got Grand Budapest Hotel and David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch. Nice. Yeah. I've never seen that one, so. It's a good one. It's, it uh, yeah. Any Cronenberg is good Cronenberg. I take that back. That he's made some movies that I don't love more recently, but Naked Lunch still falls into the category of Cronenberg movies that I love. Yeah, I think uh, I've seen the only one I can think of off the top of my head that I didn't love was A Dangerous Method. I didn't I wasn't crazy for that one, but most of the other stuff I've seen, I thought was pretty good. OK, I I might need to rewatch Maps, Map, Map to the Stars, Maps to the Stars. Oh, see, I haven't seen that yet, so I guess I may also not like it, but we'll see how it goes. It's got one day some problems. I do have A Dangerous Method, but I have not yet watched it. It was like. Years ago at Best Buy, it was like, buy three for $10, and that was one right. of the movies. So I picked it up because it's Cronenberg, and I still haven't seen it. I really wanted to like it, and I do love Kira Knightley. I think she's really good in it, but I don't know. It didn't didn't quite work for me. Okay. Um, you right. know, mileage may vary. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Um, once I finally get all my movies out of boxes, I'm excited to uh, pull things off the shelf and watch them. Yeah. For sure. Now, do you have like a, a criterion section and an arrow section or do you kind of do like alphabetical? How do you arrange? And I know that you're rearranging right now. So, yeah. So we, we used to have uh, criterion was separated out arrow, scream factory, twilight time. Like a lot of those boutique labels were separated out and now we're just going straight alphabetical so that because Erica doesn't necessarily like use up the uh mental space to remember what label put out what movie so if she's looking for a certain movie i don't want to have to i don't want her to have to look through four different sections she can just go uh and find it alphabetically so it's been a pain in the ass shelving things um because of that but it'll be nice when it's all done yeah i think when i eventually get all mine out of boxes because i recently moved so still have some in storage here in the house uh i will also go alphabetical i do have a special section of just film noir um because that's a huge passion of mine in case you haven't picked up on that from some <laughs> posts on this site um i'm sure no one could guess no. so i have a really big section of that where i have all of the fox film noir set uh thanks to my lovely andy got the last few i needed last year for my birthday um, so now I have like, I think all 25 of those Oh wow! and then some other, uh, noir sets, the Columbia noir sets and a bunch of random stuff I've picked up over the years. So that's the only stuff I have separate and the rest is right now, not in any particular order. I've just been kind of throwing it on shelves and then I'll organize it later when it's all out. So that's a fun process. I'm one of those weirdos that likes to organize my DVD collection. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. All right. Erica, for my birthday several months ago got me all three of the i want to say mill creek put them out they're called noir archive and it's oh, like yeah those looked pretty cool okay so you haven't seen any of those yet that was going to be my I've question seen... is are they any good the thing is there's so there's so many noirs that either went into public domain or there were rights issues between various studios that don't exist anymore so there's a lot of sets out there that sort of overlap with each other I've noticed. So I think there are some movies in the Mill Creek collections that I do have. I'd have to look at the, the spines to see which ones, but, um, but not all of them. So <laughs> I'm always tempted to like go and get them anyways, even for like the one or two I don't have, but we'll see. Yeah. 
Um, well, we're, we're talking about all these movies. I haven't even uh, asked the official question, so I will ask that now. Have you seen anything good lately? Well, lucky for me, this is my first time on the podcast where I can answer this question. So, um, yes, but also I'm going to go back probably farther than some people do. Okay. Um, because I haven't gotten to talk about June's exploitation yet, and I really wanted to highlight two of the movies I saw for the first time during June's exploitation. So is that allowed? Of course. Right on. Okay. I know it was like a month ago, but still. Um, okay. So the first one is Cyborg, which is yes. the Albert King- John claude Van Damme combination that apparently was originally supposed to be either like a He-Man sequel or a Batman movie that Canon ran out of money for. So anyway, it turned into something really awesome. Um, great action, as you might guess, from an Albert Pune movie. And I have to say one of the best villain names of all time. I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you remember the name of the villain in this movie? Oh, shoot. I know he's named after a guitar because everyone in the movie is named after guitars. Um, that is true. His name is Fender Tremolo. Okay. Very nice. <laughs> Which I love. I don't know. It just sounds badass. And this guy is like totally evil Vincent Klein yeah he shows up in a lot of Albert Pune movies but he's never as scary as he is in Cyborg yeah and he does the opening monologue while he's like in the middle of killing someone and it's just like so creepy and great um so yeah that was super duper fun I think it was the most June exploitation movie that I watched <laughs> um and then Inner Space which I know I love Joe Tante I'd never seen it and um I had no idea what it was about to be honest I don't know how I missed it, but I did not know it was about Martin Short, like being inhabited by Dennis Quaid. But it was was great. I loved it. Um, And Meg Ryan is fun in it, too, although I think she deserved better than the Dennis Quaid character. But anyways, uh, she should have ended up with Martin Short. I know that would have been kind of fun. Yeah. Um, But it didn't happen. But it was fun. (laughs) Yeah. And then um, non-June exploitation movies. So I've seen. I've been trying to catch up on new releases, which I know it's a weird year for new releases, but luckily for us, there's a lot that's on streaming. So um, probably my favorite one besides the old guard that I've seen recently was Blow the Man Down. Have you seen that one? Uh, I'm not familiar with it, no. Okay. Well, you should watch it. Add it to your list. So it's on Amazon Prime, um, and it's a directorial debut from two women, uh, Bridget Savage-Cole and Danielle Crudy. And basically, it takes place in this small town in Maine. It's these two sisters that their mother has died recently. They're sort of cleaning up her affairs and trying to fend for themselves. One of them has a bad run-in with a stranger in town that ends um, a little gruesomely, shall we say. And they are then tasked with trying to figure out how to either cover it up or whether they should go to the cops about it. And they have some interesting run-ins with the matriarchs of this town. It seems like it's a town where there's a lot of powerful women um and two of them are played by june squibb and margot martindale so i mean right there you know that it's going to be good performances um i also really liked some of the music in this movie it has these random like from the beginning and then a couple times in the middle random like acapella choruses by fishermen um that don't really take you out of the movie but it just kind of has a cool sound to it and sets the tone in a really neat way um feels a little coen brothersy um but not like derivative it has its own voice i just think that's a good comparison if you like that kind of stuff sort of you know small town thriller definitely worth it worth the time it's only 90 minutes too so that's a good thing i'm completely sold on it i just added it to our amazon watch list nice 
yeah, I hope you like it. It's one of my faves of the year, I would say. Very I mean, nice. haven't seen that many, but I really liked it. Um, another one on Amazon Prime that I watched was Stella and the Spades. And that one is another directorial debut um, from Tyresha Poe. And the only name I recognized in the cast was Jarrell Jerome. He was in Moonlight and um, When They See Us. But uh, there's basically it takes place at a prep school where there's five factions, um, each led by a student. And each of these factions is in charge of the various vices. So they're like um, gamblers and the kids that will write your papers for you. And then... Uh, Sella, who leads the spades, is in charge of party favors, which is, you know, drugs and alcohol. And it's very stylized. Um, it reminded me a little bit of Brick. And I think the director has even said in interviews that that was an influence because it has kids dealing with kind of adult things. And it's really got cool cinematography, very cool editing. Um, it's focused on Sella, who I think in most movies would probably be more seen as the villain than the lead. Um, but really interesting, didn't totally stick the landing for me, but it's really memorable as far as, you know, first movies goes. So I'm curious to see what the director does next. I added that one to my watch list as well. (laughs) (laughs) These, these movies were not on my radar at all. So it's great to hear about them. There you go. And what I'm noticing too, and you might be noticing this as well, is a lot of these ones that I'm naming are directed by women. I didn't go out of my way to find female-directed movies, but I feel like this year we're getting more of them. That might just be my imagination, but um, it's cool to see. I'm, I'm glad to see some some women directors out there getting some more visible work. Yeah. Uh, the next one I saw, which I know you've mentioned on a previous podcast that you and Erica watched too, was The Assistant. Um, not quite as good in my opinion, but I still liked the boldness of, of what it was trying to do. Uh, and Kitty Green, the director has done some, uh, documentaries before this. So I kind of want to check out her previous work because even though this film didn't completely work for me, I do appreciate the way that she approached this story of like an entry level, you know, film admin who's dealing with a Weinstein type boss. And, um, there wasn't enough going on for me to feel super hooked, but I guess that was probably the point that it's, you know, a lot of times evil in this world is just frustrating and monotonous and, you know, not every story ends with a big confrontation. Um, but those are probably the stories that we want to watch. Right. So, um, yeah, I was intrigued by it. Didn't totally work, but I, I liked the effort that went into it. Yeah. That's kind of how I felt about it too. And I'm, I'm still, one of the things that stuck with me weirdly enough is, you know, so much of the movie is devoted to sort of the monotony of her day Mm -hmm. and going about her business and this job that really consumes her life to the point where she eats all of her meals. We get to see her eat all of her meals at work, like basically huddled over the sink, just quickly scarfing down first a bowl of cereal. And then uh, I think they go out for lunch and bring something back. And then dinner, she's eating like a microwave thing or whatever. And it's just such a great visual representation of the idea that this place is taking her entire life, um, that she spends all day and all night in this, in this hellish job. Uh, I don't know why that stuck with me. This idea of watching her eat that we take the time to see her eat all of her meals at work, but I liked that detail. Yeah. I liked that too. It reminded me a little bit of, um, Joe versus the volcano, the part where he's in the office. Cause it seems like it's kind of poorly lit at yeah. least the way you see it. And she gets there when it's still dark. She doesn't seem to really enjoy herself at all, which who would, I guess, but 
you can tell it's also a job that she's desperate to keep because she really wants a leg up in the industry and she wants to go on to produce someday. And, you know, we know the reality is a lot of people do take these horrendous entry level jobs and maybe never even get that far up the ladder. So, um, yeah, I'm sure it was realistic. It just didn't necessarily make for super, super gripping watching at all times, but I'm glad I watched it. Yeah, me too. Um, I also know that I liked this one more than you, but I watched Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. Okay. (laughs) And um, I'm skeptical because I feel like Will Ferrell is very hit and miss for me, especially anything after, like, Step Brothers. I feel like it was very, very iffy. But I loved this movie way more than I ever should have, and I'm sure it's just because of a pandemic and I needed a laugh. But... I, I love Rachel McAdams. I think she's a treasure and something about the way she says the phrase, the elves went too far. <laughs> I just lost it. I was dying. Um, the music was really fun. I guess they got one of the real Eurovision like music writers and producers to write a lot of the songs. So they sound like real pop songs and I like all kinds of music. I'm not a, a music um, snob. I, I'm a music appreciator. So I like the big silly pop songs as much as I like, you know, indie rock or whatever. Um, so I love these songs. I loved the so- the sing-off that they had. It, it just worked for me. Dan Stevens, I thought, was really hilarious as well. So, you know, not a perfect movie. I'm not going to say it's worth, like, Oscars or anything. But I loved it. It yeah. was super fun. Yeah, it's again during a pandemic. It's uh, it's the right kind of thing. I don't think it has any business being over two hours. Uh, and had I gone to see it in a theater, I probably would have felt like that wasn't a movie. But uh, on Netflix during a pandemic, sure, bring it on. And and you're absolutely right. Rachel McAdams is the best. Yeah, she really is. Um, so the next three are not new movies, but these are. And if I'm going on too long with the have you seen anything good lately, feel free to stop me at any time. Nonsense. Um, (laughs) um, So I watched The Big Chill and I had never seen it before. I was actually skeptical because there's this like offhanded joke that uh, Jack Black makes in High Fidelity where he talks about a song being associated with The Big Chill and seems like that's a bad thing. So I guess I'd gone a really long time on that, that one little remark just assuming this movie sucked. But it actually doesn't, I'm happy to say. Um, You've got Jeff Goldblum, who's always great. Uh, Mary Kay Place, I think, really stole the show. Um, You've got William Hurt, Glenn Close, Meg Tilly, who's like a baby in this movie. Hmm. Um, Tom Berenger. I mean, it really, it's like a time capsule, and it's a really fun hangout movie. Um, It's hard to imagine this being like a huge hit or being made by a big studio today. I. You know, it feels very indie, but I know it was made by Columbia and, you know, did really well financially. So um, it made me miss those kinds of movies coming out in a big way. What do you think about The Big Chill? I haven't seen it in a long time. I remember appreciating it more than liking it because it just felt so much like my parents' movie. Mm. And I've seen we've had countless sort of imitations or derivations of The Big Chill that are much more... I mean, in the 90s, there was a whole movement of, like, hangout, walking and talking movies that are sort of inspired by The Big Chill, but obviously spoke more to me. You know, I'm thinking of something like Kicking and Screaming. Um, Right. 
that those are like my big chill. But I, I definitely like the big chill if, if for no other reason than for the cast. Just yeah. watching them hang out together is really, really fun. And we have that Criterion disc and I'm due for a rewatch. So you have inspired me to revisit the big chill. Well, there you go. Let me know how you think it holds up. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't fully relate to the characters and their specific problems, but I did. The one thing I did relate to was like this group of people who clearly were super idealist in college and had all these aspirations to change the world. And now they've sort of gotten to real life, you know, however many years on and realized that's a little easier said than done. And right. um, I think that sort of message is probably relatable to every generation, right? It, like you, you're young and wide eyed and you want to, you know, change the system and, you know, you're, you're protesting or whatever. I mean, we're, we're having these kind of movements right now. And I want to say like, what's going to keep that movement going and how do we keep that fire lit so that we don't just, you know, go back to whatever the easier life is and the, the easier choices. Um, so yeah, I thought, I thought it was a really interesting just character study. Yeah. Honestly. And, uh, Adam Risky loves it. Do you know why? Why? Kevin Costner. Oh yeah, that's right. He's <laughs> supposed to play the body. He's the body. Yeah. I um I had heard a rumor that he was in the movie, and then I was like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> there are shots of him in the movie, but it's yeah. just like his hand. Right, right. Yeah, barely barely counts, but almost. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I watched another uh, older movie that I really liked. This was one that I watched last night for Harrison Ford's birthday. I saw The Mosquito Coast. Have you seen that one? Not since it first hit video. Yeah, so um, it's... Harrison Ford being completely bonkers. Um, <laughs> basically, he is sort of a genius, I guess, um, who like complains a lot about how horrible America is becoming. And then he decides that he's going to take his entire family and move to the jungle of South America. And um, it's also got River Phoenix, which, you know, I love River Phoenix. Helen Mirren is in it. Martha Plimpton. Um, so you've got, you know, Phoenix and Ford from Indiana Jones together. And you've got <laughs> Phoenix and Plimpton who uh, were in parenthood together. So kind of a, a fun little. And uh, running on empty. That's right. Which I still need to see. Oh, it's um, so good. I know. I know. I need to. It's on my shelf. I stare at it and I'm like, I will watch this. <laughs> um, but I love Peter Weir. I think he's such a great director all the way back to, you know, Picnic at Hanging Rock. And of course the Truman Show and, um, this was a really interesting example of just him like capturing an atmosphere and following a guy going completely off the rails and taking his family with him. And there was a part of that that feels kind of resonant now because I feel like there's at least a, a certain portion of the population that shares some of the sentiments he expresses and, um, you know, that fanaticism that kind of takes hold. Uh, so it was interesting and I, I really liked just the atmospheric nature of it. Um, Definitely worth a watch if you haven't seen it or if you haven't seen it in a while. And not what I expect from Harrison Ford, you know? Yeah. We have a really good piece on it, I think, maybe from last year, like the week of F This Movie Fest. We did 1986 week. I think that was last year. I can't remember. It, everything's running together. But whatever we did for F This Movie Fest last year, Jan wrote a really, really cool piece on the mosquito coast that's worth tracking down uh, this is the perfect movie for jan to write about i'm sure it's yeah. awesome yeah well I mean, right yeah. everything she writes is but uh i know i know it's a really good one 
Yeah. I saw that movie way too young because I was like, Harrison Ford, Han Solo? Sure, I'll watch it. You know, and I was a kid and I, yeah. it, it went so far over my head. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, and the final one I'll talk about was Deja Vu, which nice. I Scott. <laughs> I had not seen this one. I don't know why I missed it, but I was so excited to see Denzel and Val Kilmer and it's set in New Orleans and there's like time travel going on and Adam Goldberg is in it as a supporting character. And like, okay, it probably has like maybe like 17 paradoxes or more. I didn't do like a whole primer like diagram of how it all works, but it's super watchable. Um, it's super fun. And it really made me miss Tony Scott. Like I love that director. I love him so much and I'm so sad that he's gone. Yeah. That's one of my favorite Tony Scott movies, and I remember going to see it. I don't remember exactly how it was marketed, but it had something to do with, like, you go through this thing and you can help solve a murder. But I don't remember time travel being a part of the marketing. So as it slowly <laughs> unfolded and it became a time travel movie, I got so excited because I love time travel movies. And I was like, yeah. well, this isn't the movie I was promised. How often does that happen? Like, that you're given something different than what you were expecting. Uh yeah, I'm a I'm a big big fan of that movie. Yeah, I really loved it, and it was a good tone setter in a lot of ways for the old guard because I feel like Tony Scott is probably an influence on this movie and, and on Gina uh, Prince Bythewood. So you know, I'm sure we can talk about that more. But sure. that was a fun one. All right. Um, what have you seen lately? I only have a couple. I watched. Based on a conversation with uh, Heather Wixon on an episode of Corpse Club where she talked about DC Cab, I had never seen DC Cab, which was the first movie uh, directed by Joel Schumacher, who just passed. Oh, yeah. He wrote the with screenplay. With Mr. T, right? Yeah, with Mr. T, exactly. <laughs> um, nice. I am a, just a total sucker for this kind of wacky comedy that came out from like 1980 to like 1985 and they're all just the the the, the progeny of animal house basically where it's like we sure. take a, a group of rowdy people and we put them together but like whatever bachelor party up the creek i'll watch any single one of them i'm down for all that shit and uh that's exactly what dc cab is it's just a wacky group of cab drivers including uh Marsha Warfield and Bill Maher and Paul Rodriguez, a lot of comedians, you know, at the time, kind of up and coming comedians. And of course, Mr. T, Adam Baldwin, Jill Sholin shows up as like the diner waitress that Adam Baldwin has a crush on. Um, super fun, not great, but like super fun and uh, doesn't feel a lot like any of Joel Schumacher's other movies, you know. Uh, because obviously he becomes very concerned with sort of beautiful surfaces, having mm -hmm. having begun his career as a costume designer, set decorator. Yeah, he was a costume designer, I believe. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so he becomes very concerned with how his movies look. And DC Cab isn't really concerned with how it looks. It's just kind of concerned with energy and having fun. And uh, it accomplishes that. So I, I enjoyed it. That's awesome. And does it uh, share anything in common with the game Crazy Taxi? I don't think so, but I never played Crazy Taxi. <laughs> Is that a video game? It's a video game okay. uh, for the Dreamcast. And I played it in college, and pretty much you just, like, pick people up and drop them off at location while going as fast as possible and hitting things. So That sounds like a crazy taxi. 
It does, right? It lives up to its name. <laughs> uh, we watched Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Ooh, I want to see that one. Yeah, that's a 2020 release written and directed by Eliza Hitman. Um, and it's been showing up on a lot of like best of the year so far lists. It's just a very simple story of a young girl who gets pregnant, um, doesn't know really what to do about that situation, and her and her cousin travel to the city to have a medical procedure uh, to get rid of the baby. And it just kind of tells their story. Um, it's very well acted. It's very well observed. Very kind of quiet. Not really a story that we haven't necessarily seen before, but um, maybe told in a way that we haven't seen it. It has a lot of the trademarks of kind of modern indie filmmaking. Um, but then every once in a while, a scene will come along like the one that inspires the title of the film and it kind of knocks you on your ass. So it's definitely worth seeing. Yeah. I definitely need to catch up with that one. It's on my list for, for sure. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, the only other one that I'll talk about, oh, there's two more I'll talk about. One is an older movie that I just watched that I want to talk about because it's one of my favorite discoveries of the year. Ooh. And that is uh, The Tall Men from 1955. It's a Western starring Clark Gable and Robert Ryan and Jane Russell. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it it's one of these movies that, again, really... Maybe I'd heard the title. It's directed by Raoul Walsh. Um, and I only saw it because Twilight Time had put it out. And during their going on a business sale, we picked it up very cheap. Um, but it's got this amazing, you know, that 1950s widescreen photography, these amazing landscapes. The first third of the movie kind of takes place in the snow. Uh, and I'm a sucker for a snowy western. I was mm -hmm. never a huge Clark Gable guy, and then in the last year or two, um, I've really kind of warmed up to Clark Gable, and now I really, really like him on screen. I don't know what it was that was giving me the Clark Gable allergy, um, but now I really like him. And it's just, it's a movie basically about a cattle drive. Um, Robert Ryan hires Clark Gable and his brother, played by the great Cameron Mitchell, uh, to drive a bunch of cattle basically across the country. And he's going to, you know, pay him a bunch of money if they do it. And there's a love triangle between Robert Ryan and Clark Gable and Jane Russell. Um, it's just insanely entertaining and just a movie that I loved living in for two hours. Yeah. I'll watch Robert Ryan in anything. So I'm definitely going to have to track that one down. All right. It's a good one. Um, yeah. and then the actual last one that I'll talk about is, uh, there were a bunch of new releases this past weekend, including The Old Guard, including uh, Relic, which we rented and still haven't watched. Um, but we watched Palm Springs on Hulu, which is the new Andy Samberg time loop movie. Um, and I got to say, for as much as we said, like, oh, uh, Eurovision Song Contest is the perfect movie for the pandemic. Palm Springs is the perfect movie for the pandemic because it's literally about, hey, what would you do if every day was the exact same and you can't escape <laughs> your reality? It's like, oh, my God, that's what we're living in right now. Yeah. Um, Kristen Milioti, 
I don't know if I'm saying her name right. She plays opposite Andy Samberg. She was like the mother on How I Met Your Mother. Um, oh, okay. I knew the name. I couldn't remember why. Yeah, she shows up in a bunch of stuff, uh, and I can't ever remember her name. I had to look it up just now. But she's like, you know, she's she's Leo DiCaprio's first wife in uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, and she was the mother on How I Met Your Mother. But she's really, really great in the movie. And Andy Samberg is really, really fun. It's just they're at a wedding. And every day is the same. I don't want to say too much, obviously, for fear of spoilers. But it's really entertaining. And then underneath that surface, it's actually saying some really beautiful things about, you know, I mean, in, in the same way that Groundhog Day does, about our capacity for change, about our capacity for growth. Um, it raises, you know, these pretty profound questions about how we view the universe. Um, it's it's probably one of my favorite movies of the year. I mean, it would be up there uh, among my favorite movies of the year. I was really surprised by how much more than just sort of a passing distraction the movie is. I expected it to be kind of light and fun and entertaining and forgettable, and I think it's actually a lot more than that. I'm really curious about that one. I have not seen it, and I actually didn't hear much about it until this weekend, and then everybody on Twitter was saying how great it was, so now I have to catch up with it for sure. But for me, I, I feel like Sandberg is best when he's not quite as goofy. Um, I don't know if you ever saw Celeste and Jesse Forever. I did, yeah. Uh, but I thought he was really great in that, and I've been kind of waiting to see him do something similar. So I don't know if it's, it's in that same vibe or not, but it sounds like it might be at yeah. least in that trajectory. Yeah, I think you get, I think you get both, you know, because and and same with Celeste and Jesse Forever, because it's kind of like this goofy guy who eventually has to grow up, and that's I think very yeah. similar to what we get in in Palm Springs. Yeah, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to check that one out for sure. Yes. Uh, well, that brings us to the old guard, uh, yes. which is the latest movie from director Gina Prince Bythewood, who is one of the last people I would have expected, uh, for a movie like this, um, because all of her past films, which include, uh, beyond the lights and brown sugar, right? And uh, Love and Basketball, which is one of Erica's favorites. Yep. Secret um, Life of Bees. I forgot all about Secret Life of Bees. Um, have been sort of relationship movies. Um, I take it back. She did not do Brown Sugar. I apologize. I, I misspoke. Um, They've been these relationship movies, and here comes The Old Guard, which is based on a comic book that I have not read, uh, but is, you know, kind of a straightforward action movie with a little bit of like a, I guess, a, a fantasy bent, because it's about this group of, uh, what do you call them, uh, agents? <laughs> I don't know what you would call them. Immortal mercenaries? Kind of like mercenaries, right, except they're, you know, doing good work. Um, who can't die? Yeah, they're, they're essentially immortals, and we never really learn why they're immortal, just that they are. Um, and it stars Charlize Theron and Chiwetel Ejiofor. Um, 
and uh, Kiki Lane, and I don't know exactly how to say his name, but Matthias Schoenitz or something. Yeah, from The Drop and uh, something else. What's the one with Tilda Swinton? Damn it. Um, Rust and Bone? No, she's not in that. No. The Danish Girl? No. It's not the Danish Girl. I don't remember. <laughs> a bigger splash. I know, Sorry, I I, I knew I know him from Bullhead, like primarily, but oh, uh, okay. a bigger splash is is worth checking out. Um, he plays Tilda Swinton's boyfriend in that movie, and uh, but it's worth checking out. But he's an actor that I always like, and so when he pops up in something, I get excited. You loved the Old Guard, so I will hand it to you first to talk about uh, this movie. Okay. Well, I did love it. Um, so, so much. First of all, I do say I, I love Charlize Theron in so many things. I love when she is dramatic. I love when she's funny, like the long shot. And I especially love her in action mode. Atomic Blonde was totally my dad. I also, of course, love Mad Max Fury Road. And I'm a little saddened she won't be in the next one. Um, but yeah, she's fantastic in this movie. And Kiki Lane, I thought, was absolutely phenomenal. She played Tish in If Beale Street Could Talk, and this role could not be more opposite from that. In that movie, she's kind of like shy and reserved and, you know, this like young romantic lead who's a little naive seeming. In this movie, she's just a total badass who completely like knows what she's doing in most moments. And then when this, you know, unexpected thing happens, it throws her for a loop, but she's still very much like in charge of her own life and destiny and like does not let go of the reins. And I thought that was really cool. Um, it's not a stereotypical action movie in the sense that I feel like there was many, there's much more like stakes to what happens in this movie. And that's surprising considering that the leads are immortal. But um, when I was doing some reading with uh, interviews with Gina Prince Bythewood, um, she talks about how she had her, her lead, you know, actors read books about the psychological effects of taking a life and like the PTSD that people get that have fought in wars and things like that. So she really wanted you to feel the weight of every kill. It wasn't just like, this is a cool looking shot of somebody like getting stabbed in the neck, but like, this is the toll it takes on a person who's been doing it for hundreds of years and it's, it's going to leave a mark. Um, so maybe they're, you know, bodies are immortal and they can heal physically, but there are still some major scars mentally, I think. Um, so I like that aspect of it because I feel like, I mean, I love a comic book movie as much as the next person, but I also feel like sometimes they get a bit generic with how they're going to outdo themselves action wise. And then we kind of lose the part that like, these are in theory, real people that are dying, you know, in these disasters and, and in these big fight scenes. And so, I felt like even when they're killing these nameless soldiers in this movie, you still sort of feel it every time. Um, I also loved that these characters don't feel like necessarily characters I've seen before in a, an action movie or in, in a comic book movie. We have a gay romance that's really profound and beautiful um, between two of the male characters. Um, we have you know, a really strong young woman in Kiki Lane who plays Niall Freeman. She's a Marine in Afghanistan at the time. And it's even those scenes I felt like were not stereotypical. Like she really is, is shown as this strong, 
respectful person who's really trying to do the right thing. Um, and I thought even Charlize Theron as, as Andy, she has this world weirdness about her, but it's not just like depression in, and she's, you know, really burdened by the fact that they've been doing this for centuries and they still don't feel like they've seen the world get better. And she, you know, sees TV screens with various bad news on them. And that part, that part felt really relevant to right now, because I think, you know, a lot of us are feeling that, that feeling of what am I doing? Like, is it making a difference? How am I going to change the world when it seems like everything is falling apart? Um, I felt like that's relatable whether you're immortal or a kick-ass superhero or not. Um, so there were just a lot of relatable pieces to this. And I felt like having Gina prince Bythewood would direct it really, even though it doesn't make sense on its face because you're thinking like, okay, she's the, the romantic drama person or the, you know, the person that does these more um, small-scale indie movies – she gets how to do character and to communicate that in the small moments. And I think having those, those little things kind of spliced throughout the film and imbuing those characters with more depth, it really makes all the action that much more memorable and that much more interesting because you're seeing it through that lens of who these people really are. Um, so that was one of the many reasons that it worked for me, but I've talked for long enough. So Patrick, tell me what you thought about this movie. Well, you're not going to like me. Um, oh, no. <laughs> I thought it was okay. Like, I thought it was fine. I thought, I think I'm spoiled. And this is probably coming from a place of privilege as a white man. Because I can look at all the ways in which this movie is progressive. That we have a black woman directing the film. That it is about a female action hero that the sort of co-lead is a black woman. And 10 years ago, both of these parts, again, I haven't read the comic book, so they're obviously probably being faithful to the comic book. If this, if this were just its own property 10 years ago, 15 years ago, this for sure is about a man and uh, his new, you know, the person he's mentoring is just a younger man. Um, we have the gay romance in the film. We have uh, a largely European cast. Um, there's all these ways in which this movie is progressive. And then it adds up to, for me, to a movie that's like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> you know, and I feel <laughs> horrible not liking it more than I'm able to appreciate sort of the pieces, but less so the sum of the parts. Um I think Gina Prince-Bythewood does an admirable job with the action. I think the action in the film is pretty good, and that's the part that I was maybe the most skeptical about because so many of her films are more dialogue-based and character-based. And, and I guess for me, that's where the movie falls short, and it sounds like the characters worked better for you than they did for me um, because... For me, it just kind of came down to like, okay, that's, she's the leader and okay, she's the new one. And those two guys are the two guys that are in love with each other. And Matthias Schoenarts, I, I guess, is just the other guy. Um, there's something, you know, later in the film that I guess I could use to identify him, but I won't for fear of spoilers. Um, 
I was really hoping that she would bring that attention to character to this film. And unfortunately, everybody felt, for me, a little bit generic. Um, in terms of their characterization, none more so than Charlize Theron, who is great and very kick-ass and very self-assured. Um and I guess is sort of carrying the weight of a lifetime of many, many, many lifetimes with her. Um, but just came off to me as a little bit of a drag. Um, and that's probably too harsh, but the whole thing, unfortunately for me landed a little bit generic. Like I've seen Netflix make this movie before they just kind of made it with Chris Hemsworth a couple months ago. I don't even remember the name of that movie, and I saw it. Uh, was that Extraction? Extraction, thank you. I did not see it, but... <laughs> I liked this I better I than it. Extraction. Uh, def I okay. definitely liked this sure. better than Extraction. Um, but it had the same kind of, like, a little bit of a disposable feel. Like, something about this movie felt very, like, 2002 to me. Again, minus those progressive elements. I agree with you that it feels a little 2002, but I liked that about it. And what okay. I mean is it feels like in some ways it comes before the glut of Marvel movies and it's just operating on its own terms, which, you know, back then we had more standalone movies and more action drama type of movies. I referenced Tony Scott earlier with Deja Vu, and I think um, – I think Gina Prince Bythewood has even mentioned him in some of her interviews as, as an influence as somebody who made not just action movies, but action dramas. And that's something I always liked about Tony Scott was, you know, you really got to know his characters. I feel like they take time in between the cool fight scenes and the cool, you know, chase scenes or whatever, and the explosions to establish what's going on. I think of man on fire, right. And Denzel, like having that real crisis of, of faith and crisis of, whether he even wants to be part of the world anymore. And I feel like some of that kind of bleeds into this movie in a way where you have characters like that, that are, are grappling with real life emotions and they're not just untouchable superheroes. They have that element to them, but they have other things they're dealing with. Um, I mean, I can see from where, where you're saying, like it feels a little bit generic. I think the writing um, isn't what we would have gotten if, if, Gina had written it herself. It was actually written by Greg Rucka, who did the the comic book. So he adapted his own material. Um, so, you know, I mean, I guess it makes sense that it feels a little more graphic novel in that way. But I still think there's some memorable dialogue. I think two of the things that come to mind for me, one was an exchange between Charlize as Andy and Kiki Lane as Niall, where Niall is kind of debating whether or not to contact her family now that she knows you know, she's immortal um, and whether or not it's worth it to, you know, try to tell them her secret and will that alienate them further and she's going to lose them eventually anyway. Um, and Charlize says it's not what time steals, it's what it leaves behind. And then it kind of goes into all of these, you know, scars and, and things that she she has dealt with over the hundreds of years she's been alive, all the losses that she's had. And I thought that was a really great line. And then there's this awesome, I don't want to spoil it, but there's this awesome monologue uh, that one of the members of the gay couple has about love and about, you know, what they've been through together um, in the middle of the movie in a place that's very unexpected. 
and I absolutely loved it. I want to memorize it. It's so good. Um, I'm like swooning just thinking about it. So, you know, I mean, I guess it doesn't work for everybody probably. And it's okay that you don't love it as much as I do. But I think for me to see this kind of movie with strong, diverse, you know, characters directed by a woman who has been in the industry for 20 years and still only been able to get five movies made, I, I just found it encouraging and inspiring I literally was like okay I'm gonna be you know Charlie's there and for Halloween and that means I'm gonna have to, like work out and like lift weights so I can be strong and like kick people's asses um it, it just like it, it's a feel-good movie and it's also very meditative at times and it also grapples with really interesting ethical stuff so we don't want to get too much into spoilers I'm sure but one of the core questions here is kind of and it's a question that the group deals with in various circumstances, not just in this one instance, but the question of doing things for the greater good and what sacrifices you're willing to make, or, you know, is it worth it for, you know, one or two people to die so that the rest of the world could live? And, um, you know, if you could get rid of disease altogether, get rid of aging altogether, what would you do to get there? I think those are really big questions, and they're questions that, are worth asking. I don't think they're going to be answered definitively in a movie like philosophers and scholars have been studying this for years, but I liked a movie that's willing to potentially have some corny moments, which I don't think it does, but it could have to ask those questions and to kind of grapple with something as big as that. I, I have to admit that I was a little bit disappointed that I feel like the screenplay again by Greg Rucka, um, it's thinking a little small for my liking because it introduces the concept of immortality and it takes characters who are these like kick-ass action heroes and it makes them immortal, right? So I'm on board for that movie, this group of immortal mercenaries. Like that's a great log line. I'm down. Um, but like, I have this thing. <laughs> there was a, there was a trend in like maybe the early two thousands, I think, um, where every kids movie seemed to be about like magical creatures, and then we want to know how they can help us, like with our jobs, with our careers. It's like the Smurfs. Oh my gosh, the Smurfs exist. Hey, Smurfs, how can you help me with my marketing campaign and advance my career? Or or Kevin James in Zookeeper. It's like, oh my gosh, I can talk to animals. This is amazing. How can you help me get dates? And it, it was it was always like it would take this amazing, fantastical concept and ground it in this real world tedium. And for me, there's a little bit of that in the old guard, which is Let's take these amazing, immortal, kick-ass mercenaries and then let's subject them to medical testing. Like, the story that we think of is, how can we extract their immortality to combat uh, disease? And I'm not saying that that's not an interesting story, but so much of the film is devoted to, like, them... Uh, this is a mild spoiler, so if you don't want any spoilers, please skip ahead about 30 seconds. Um so much of the film is, is about them being captured and subject to medical testing. 
and and it's the kind of thing where I know you've watched the movie more than once, and so um, that helps a lot of times because I will admit I've only seen it once, and I'm still grappling with the movie that it is and not the movie that I was hoping it would be, right? And so the movie that I was hoping it would be doesn't have a whole plot about them being captured and subject to medical testing. But that's the movie that it is. So perhaps a second viewing would help me with that storyline being the story that's being told because it doesn't live up to the expectations that were in my head, but that's not really fair to hold it against the movie. Yeah, no, I can get that. Um, I, I think there's a few things. So first of all, I, from what I understand, this is intended to be, at least the graphic novel was intended to be part of a trilogy. So potentially if this movie did well enough and who knows by Netflix standards, I saw that it was number one, but I don't know what that means. Um, that, that it means that it could have a sequel. And I think in the sequel, they might be able to explore more of the stuff that you're talking about. Um, but I also just enjoy that it went a little bit of a different direction from what I was expecting with the premise, because I've seen that premise before to some extent. I mean, every vampire movie essentially could be about this. I think specifically of only lovers left alive from Jim Jarmusch. And like, if you want, you know, a movie about immortals hanging out and talking really smart to each other, like that's a really great example of that. Um, this is a movie that doesn't necessarily do that. I still think it has some good dialogue moments, but maybe that's not like the five star moment of the movie. Um, but I think it, it just wanted to do something a little bit different. And I think about movies that deal with the problem of immortality. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen no such thing, with Sarah Polly, but that's a great that example of a movie about immortality and how it's not necessarily great. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so there's other movies that deal with that. I think that just having it as like almost a background detail of this movie instead of the entire point maybe makes it more interesting. I don't know. That's my opinion. Well, there are aspects of that whole part of a trilogy thing that I think seep into this movie in a way that annoys me. Um, and that's not fair, but it's just a victim of our current cinematic climate, which is like everything is a setup for a larger story. Everything is part mm -hmm. of a trilogy. Everything is the first part of a series. And so part of me wants to just skip ahead to like the second movie where Kiki Lane is already part of the group and not having to be indoctrinated and taught here's who this character is and here's the way that we do it. And, you know, um, and there's a, again, mild spoiler. I won't say what it is, but there's a sort of a post credits tag that to me was unforgivable just in its, in the way that it tries to set up a sequel and kind of ruined one of the more interesting things in the movie. I thought, um, there's a flashback about a, a supporting character, kind of a tertiary character, uh, where they just tell the story of, you know, something that happened to Charlize Theron and this other woman that's really interesting and really compelling and really kind of informs Charlize Theron's character. And then there's this post-credits thing that kind of steps all over that, for me at least. Oh, see, I completely disagree. <laughs> <laughs> you were, you were, you were into it. Okay. Yes. In. But, you know, I mean, I was 100% sold on the movie at that point. So that may make a difference, too. I it made me excited because I was like, OK, here's another dimension of the story that we didn't get to explore. And maybe 
if there is another movie, we'll get to delve into that deeper. Um, I enjoyed the open endedness of it. I, I mean, I would have been fine without it, but I, I, th- I think it added a fun little what if to the story. Um, I liked that. One thing I do have to talk about that we haven't yet is one of the characters in this movie is played by Harry Melling. And if that name sounds at all familiar, <laughs> it might be because you watched the Harry Potter movies and this character, this uh, actor played Dudley Dursley. And in this movie, he's also not a great guy. Like he's not a total spoiled lump like he is <laughs> in the Harry Potter movies, but he's more of like a Martin Shkreli kind of like pharma dude. Um, and I thought he played this role with just, you know, great smarm. It's, it's a part that he could have probably sleepwalked through, but he did a lot to make it memorable. And I was trying to remember where I'd seen him before because he doesn't really look like Dudley anymore, obviously. Um, and I realized that, uh, he popped up, you know, in a Coen brothers movie, not that long ago as a, a sideshow character, um, one of the parts of the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I don't know if you remember seeing him, but he was the guy with no legs that's, you know, performing for money in one of the episodes. So anyways, it was fun to see him playing a villain with a great amount of joy. I spent the entire movie trying to figure out. I was like, I know that I know him and I can't figure out from where. And then I finally put it together. He's Dudley from Harry Potter. I completely failed to realize that he's from that Liam Neeson segment in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs until you just said it. Um, I had no idea that he was the same guy, but now that you say it, I can picture him a hundred percent. He for me is in a different movie in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like he's acting in one of the kick-ass movies and this movie is not nobody else is in a kick-ass movie in this movie <laughs> like True. he is going very big um and everybody else is kind of dour and uh again i think trying to play to this idea of being saddled with immortality which i would be fine with if as you pointed out i hadn't already seen it in so many other movies right the idea of the weight of living forever um and you mentioned a lot of other movies that deal with it for me in a more interesting way, like only lovers left alive or no such thing, which I appreciate you giving a shout out to that movie. Cause I really love that movie. It's a great movie. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. I love uh, the score for that movie too. The hell Hartley score is so good. Oh. Um, yeah, no, thank you for giving some love to that movie. Cause maybe we'll turn some people onto it. Um, I will say I don't want to spoil anything. Ultimately, what happens to Dudley is one of my favorite things in this movie. And one of my favorite things I've seen in a movie all year. Like, the way that Gina Prince-Bythewood stages that whole thing is so fantastic. And it the movie came alive in a way in that moment that it hadn't anywhere else for me. And I was like, oh, if that had been the whole movie, this would really be something. Um yeah, I thought that was great. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of see what you're saying about him feeling like he's in a different movie. But here's why that doesn't bother me. Because Martin Shkreli really exists and really <laughs> is like a cartoon villain who would absolutely be acting this way if he was in this situation. Like, 
There is no question in my mind that he walked around with like suit jackets that have hoodies attached to them and like, (laughs) you know, would completely like have a ridiculous amount of armed guards around him and, and think he's like saving the world, but also making tons of money. I just, because that guy really exists, I totally bought this character, even though he is completely outsized. Do you feel like this movie wastes Chiwetel Ejiofor? Um, to some extent, every movie wastes Chiwetel Ejiofor because he's so good. Not what was the movie? Um, uh, the Neil Jordan movie that? Uh, uh, oh my god! <laughs> Thing tiny. Oh, this is so upsetting. Um, it was the movie that I first saw him in, and oh, like, okay. and I, and it was like a real who is that? Dirty pretty things. Okay, isn't that that's a Stephen Freer is not right? Neil Jordan. I get yeah. all my Irishmen. Confused it's okay, they're Stephen all British. Freer's is British, right? Um, have you seen Dirty Pretty Things? I haven't, but you're reminding me that he's in it. I had forgotten that, so now I need to go back to it. It was the first thing I had ever seen him in. I he was not anybody on my radar at all, at all, and it was it's a real like oh my god, who is that kind of a performance? Like. Yeah. Where did they find this guy, and how can we just put him in every movie from now on? Um, and instead, he plays like the sidekick in Doctor Strange. Uh, and that's the thing, like he's wasted in almost every role. Yeah. Even I mean, I did, you know, think he was wonderful in Twelve Years a Slave, but like we can do more with this guy. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, he's kind of like the Laurence Olivier of our time, and I don't know why nobody figured that out yet, but. Yeah, um, he's actually more of a complex character, though, than I thought he was going to be. So that was rewarding. I won't say more on that because I'm afraid of spoiling things. But um, he could have been much more one-dimensional than they decided to make him. Yeah, I agree with that. When it seemed like he was going to be one thing, I was so much less interested than when, as you said, he, he's revealed to be a little bit more. And again, we don't want to spoil things, but he has a he has a good, at least he's given one good monologue about his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, of course, I would love to see more on him. I, I would also love to see more of, you know, Quinn, which, again, like if there's a trilogy, which maybe there will be, maybe there won't be. That's a character that I would love to see more time devoted to. Um, and really any of these characters. Right. I would love to spend more time with Nikki and Joe. I would love to spend more time with Charlize before all of these people came into her life. And I would love to see the future of Niall when she, you know, has fully embraced being a part of this and what that is going to look like going forward. So I think there's a lot of different directions these characters could go. But I do think that this works as a standalone movie, even if they don't make anything else, even if you don't pick up the graphic novel, even though I'm probably going to (laughs) um, because I'm obsessed. But I, I just think, you know this is a movie that I I wanted to spend more time with every single one of the characters. And that's unusual for an action movie. I feel like I didn't give quite enough love to Charlize Theron. And and that's probably just because it's such a given at this point that like, Oh, if she's in your movie, she's going to be great. Right. She's the only thing worth watching in bombshell. And she makes that the same year that she makes long shot. And she's amazing in mm-hmm. that. And nobody thinks she can do comedy, but here she is being amazing in that movie. And then not a year later, or I guess a year later we get her in the old guard where, and we'd already seen her do action as you pointed out in Fury road and particularly in atomic blonde, which I 
didn't love, but I loved her in. Um, and, you know, the comparisons, especially when Atomic Blonde came out to John Wick, uh, I think were in large part because they shared a director. Mm-hmm. Um, but also because we have a giant movie star clearly doing her own, if not stunts, then her own what Keanu Reeves calls physical acting, right? He says, I don't do my mm-hmm. own stunts, I do physical acting. Um, and she does great physical acting. And the fact that we're not holding her up on a pedestal the same way we do Keanu is crazy to me because she deserves every bit of credit that he gets. Um, and that's not to say anything bad about Keanu Reeves. I'm as big a Keanu Reeves fan as there is. I just want Charlize Theron to be getting some of the same attention because, um, she's amazing in action and really deserves more attention. I think for the physicality of this performance, uh, in addition to, you know, what she did in atomic blonde and fury road, but the physicality in this performance is really, really great. I don't think there's a ton of characterization there. And again, I think that's because of the screenplay. Anything that's there is because Charlize Theron is, is, is squeezing it out. Um, and she's really, really terrific. Yeah. That fight scene that we get, and it's actually the first scene of the movie that was shot, the fight scene between uh, Charlize and Kiki on the plane, yeah. is one of the best action set pieces I can think of in quite a while. And I know we've had some great examples of them, and I'm sure there's some, you know, uh, Asian movie that's that's going to, like, blow this away later on this year, because I know there's lots of great martial arts movies and things coming out of that area. But this scene is so well choreographed and you can tell that they're actually like going through the motions it's edited so that you can actually see what's happening one thing i hate about action movies right now is where there's so many quick cuts that you can tell they're not actually hitting each other there's nothing going on there it's just moving the camera around so that you think you're seeing something and this you're actually seeing it which i respect so much more um and i think both kiki lane and charlie's trained really hard for the roles that they're in and it really pays off because of that yeah it's frustrating when you can tell that an actor has really prepared and trained and then the director doesn't know how to shoot or stage the action and it's like well now you've wasted all this hard work that they've gone to because they're prepared they're doing a lot of these fight scenes but you messed up shooting it. And it's a credit again to Gina Prince Bythewood for knowing to hold the camera, to not just mm-hmm. cut away, you know, and it doesn't get super show offy. You know, there's, I know you said you didn't see extraction, but there's this incredibly long take that at a certain point becomes kind of masturbatory and show offy. Like, look, we're not cutting. Can you believe it? Even though you know that they're just cutting digitally and hiding the edits. Right. Um, there's nothing like that in this movie. And I appreciate that she's not being super show offy. She's just being very sort of straightforward. And I mean, stylish to an extent, but um, I really, I, I had no idea how she would handle directing action uh, because it's so far outside of what her other films have been, but she does a really good job with it. Yeah, and she so she was originally supposed to direct, um, I want to say it was an X-Men spinoff called Silver and Sable, 
And that, like, she worked on it for a couple of years. I remember checking it over and over again to see when it was coming out because I was like, yay, Gina Prince-Bythewood is making another movie. Um, and then it got tabled and I was super disappointed. But she has talked in interviews about how even though she's bummed that that didn't work out, it was really good preparation for this movie because of all the research she had to do and all the, you know, sort of preparatory steps of storyboarding and figuring out how they were going to shoot the various action set pieces for that. So um, I think she was much more prepared for this than you would expect for somebody who's never shot an action movie before. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what she's got next, but this makes it seem like she's capable of doing a lot more than people might have thought. Yeah, which is exciting because, again, it hopefully will force some producers to think a little bit outside the box when they are hiring people to do these kind of action movies or these kind of comic book adaptations or franchise movies. Um, you know, that somebody who has been working in a different sort of genre is still very capable and and perhaps even more than capable uh, of bringing the goods when it comes to one of these movies. So hopefully, you know, we'll start to see... I don't know. We're going to, we're going to see the $200 million Mark Duplass, uh, Marvel movie. <laughs> I would watch that. So I, would I. <laughs> yeah, no, I would definitely watch that. Um, one thing, because we're talking about superhero movies that I do have to say I loved was that this does not put them in stupid outfits and nobody's wearing high heels while they're fighting. <laughs> that is they true. look like they're wearing sensible clothing and it's so refreshing. Yeah, again, and that's maybe that's a function of, you know, a movie that's directed by a woman instead of directed by a man, because you look at something like Atomic Blonde, and I know that that's part of the movie's hook and part of its aesthetic, but, like, that's a movie directed by a man, so she's fighting in high heels, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, this was much more practical, relatable. (laughs) I liked it. It was good. Is it safe to say that this will be on your favorites of the year? It is very safe to say. Right now, it is my favorite movie of 2020. And, you know, the the year has about five months left, and I have some catching up to do. But, um, yeah, this will definitely be in my top list. I can guarantee it. And I really hope that at some point it becomes available to watch in a theater when it's safe to go to the theaters again. Because I would love to see this on a big screen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. But, uh, well, that's very exciting because, honestly, I just was, like, thinking about, I had been looking for a show for us to do and I saw that there was a new Gina Prince Bythewood movie and I thought, okay, let's do that. So the fact that it turned out to be your favorite movie of the year is like a really happy surprise. It is a happy surprise. I am delighted because I had very few expectations going in. I knew it was Gina Prince Bythewood and I knew it was Charlize, but you know, things that go straight to Netflix are hit and miss. So yeah. glad this was a hit for me and I'm sorry you didn't love it more, but I think you should watch it again. Uh, perhaps I will after I watch all those other movies that you told me to watch. <laughs> Fair enough. Sure. <laughs> well, thank you for, uh, for, for coming on the show and for talking about this. And, uh, I know we're still due for like a, you, me and Erica, we're going to do some kind of a Wes Anderson retrospective. Yes. I'm super excited for that whenever it happens, but this has been absolutely. So thank you so much for having me on. Yes. Thank you. And, uh, thank you guys again for listening uh, as always, go to fthismovie.com every day for articles and podcasts and whatever else you want to, you know, uh, read about. Um, go follow us on Twitter, at fthismovie, on Facebook, 
on Instagram, although we don't post very much on Instagram because I don't really get Instagram, <laughs> but uh, it's there if you want to. I don't think we posted in like over a month, but it's there if you want to follow us on Instagram. Uh, and you can email us at fthismoviepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, next week, we will be back with Adam Risky talking about Congo, a movie I have not seen since the theater. I don't know how you feel about it. Have you seen Congo? Oh. Have I seen Congo? I don't think I have seen Congo. Sorry. I was like waiting for the the exit thing and I, I didn't realize. Um, Have I seen Congo? No, I have not. All right. Well, then. Well, I'm excited for this podcast. You'll, <laughs> you'll want to catch up on it before next week. Uh, <laughs> but thank you again, Rosalie, and thank you guys very much. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.